My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Cockney Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Do you think you know a lot about the account of the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples? The ceremony that stemmed from the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion is commonly called today Holy Communion, the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. It's likely that the celebration of Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper, is probably the most famous ceremony that's practiced by the Christian Church. But how much do you know about it? Today, Pastor Jones will examine the Gospel writers and the Apostle Paul's teaching about this most sacred of Christian observances. As we begin, I would encourage you, even if you have taken part in the Lord's Supper for decades, to ask God to reveal his truth in a deeper way to you. There's still much to learn here, so I pray that you'll be blessed as we examine the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. Good morning. This is Pastor Lane Jones from Caucus Baptist Church, and glad that you could join us today for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. And those of you that may have been following us over the last several months know that we've been dealing with the life of Christ, trying to take the events of our Lord's ministry and the order in which he lived them. And so now we've come to one of the most famous events that took place in his life, and that is what we call commonly the Last Supper. Now, the Last Supper really consists of three different things. The first would be the preparations for that Last Supper. We'll be looking at that and some of the background swirling around what's happening in Jesus' life at that point. We'll also consider the Passover meal. Sometimes we confuse the Last Supper for the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal is what the disciples came together with Jesus to celebrate. That's really what they're thinking is going on. And then it is during the end of that Passover meal that Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. Some of you would know it better maybe by the term communion or even by the term Eucharist. And rather interesting, I was looking up the etymology, the beginning of the word Eucharist, where it comes from, what it really means. And I found it fascinating that it actually carries the idea of being thankful. Thanksgiving or gratitude seem to be involved in this word. And how appropriate is that? Because what the Last Supper, or excuse me, the Lord's Supper is supposed to lead us to do is to give thanks to God, specifically to Christ, for the sacrifice that he has made on the cross for our sins. There was an old man up in Vermont, as the story goes. His name was Eb. And he was one of those guys that didn't like to say too much at all. And when he did have to say anything, he'd say it rather grudgingly. Well, anyway, after a long day's work and a good supper and peaceful sights and sounds of dusk, must have softened him up a little bit. And so his wife of many years is sitting there out on the porch with him. And he kind of stares out there a little thoughtfully. And finally he says, you know, when I think of what you've meant to me all these years, Judith, sometimes it's almost more than I can stand not to tell you. Also interesting uh, uh, hearing about this guy who was retiring after many years of service to his business, but they the company was rather cheap. And so you remember how years ago they used to give you a, a gold watch or something along that line? Well, anyway, they came up to old Homer and they said, well, listen, we can't afford a gold watch for you, but here's the phone number that gives the correct time. And the reality is that when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, what it's supposed to be about 
is giving thanks to Christ for his suffering on the cross for our sins. And so before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we need your help as we look into your word today. We thank you for the opportunity of studying it. We ask that you would help us to understand what your word has to say. There's a lot here to consider. And so we ask for your grace and guidance as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know for some of you may be thinking, well, I know about everything there is to know about the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or Communion. I've been celebrating that all my life. Some of you go to churches where you may be celebrated every week. And so we can get to the place where we think we know all there, that we know all there is to know about the Lord's Supper and that final time with his disciples. But God really does have much for us to learn on this subject. And I would challenge you, if you stay with me, I think you'll learn some things maybe you had never thought about before as well. Let me start out by reading the combined accounts that I put together, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, and then harmonizing them so you get a, a better picture of what was going on. So I'm going to start out, it says, Then the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread came when the Passover must be killed. And he sent, he is Jesus, he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found that just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, let me just give you a few thoughts on this. First of all, God had worked out the timing, hadn't he? This is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, what was the significance of that? Well, that's really the greatest holiday that the Jewish people celebrate all year long, and that is connected with the exodus and the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And so it's a seven-day feast. It's a wonderful time when people from all over the world get together and enjoy a time of fellowship and worship and praise. And so that's the, the what the disciples believe they're preparing for, and they are. They're preparing for that great Passover meal, which they may not have realized would be the last one that Jesus would be able to celebrate with them before his crucifixion. And so God had worked out the timing because those the what would happen during this wonderful feast is there would be by the thousands animals, lambs sacrificed during that time. And when Jesus first began his public ministry, if you remember, John the Baptist announced him to the world as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so the Lamb of God was going to be slain on the very day that the Passover lambs were being slain throughout the temple area in Jerusalem. So God had worked out the timing. The disciples also, though, had to prepare the meal. And it's rather interesting, the disciples that Jesus picked to prepare the meal, it was Peter and John. Now, Peter is kind of like the unofficial leader of the group. He's the one that, when Jesus asks a question, seems to always be the one to speak up and kind of answer for everybody else. Now, John's no slouch either. He's a fiery man called one of the sons of thunder, he and his brother James. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 and 21, James and John's mom tried to get Jesus to give to her two sons the top two positions in Christ's kingdom. So these are two important figures in the apostles, in the 12 disciples, and Jesus puts them together. Now, whether or not they had a good relationship or not, at this point, we don't know. Very well may have, because they seem to grow up in the same town. But be that as it may, Christ chose Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover. And then he had special instructions for finding the location for the meal. 
If you recall, we just read how they would enter a city, look for a man carrying a pitcher of water, and follow that man to the house where he enters, and the owner of that house was to be told that Jesus, who he calls himself the teacher, wants to use his house for the Passover for himself and his disciples, and that man would have a large upper room that was not only furnished but also prepared where they could make the Passover meal. And circumstances aligned perfectly according to what Jesus had said, and then you have the complete obedience of the disciples in following the Lord's instructions and preparing for the Passover meal. So that's the preparations for the Last Supper. Let's talk then about Christ's last Passover with his disciples. I'm going to read again, uh, combining the gospel accounts. It says, When even had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now I'm going to stop right there for just a second because John records some things that we've talked about in previous weeks. He records Jesus washing the disciples' feet and challenging them to follow his example of servant leadership. Jesus also commented that not all of his disciples were clean as he's washing their feet. And what Christ meant by this statement is where we're going to next pick up John's narrative. So I'm skipping ahead in what John would tell us. And he says, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke, and they began to be sorrowful. And to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. Now let's again consider what's going on here. We see the time of day. It is evening. Now if you're not familiar, in the Jewish system, a new day begins with the evening. So this is actually the day of Christ's crucifixion, although and from our standpoint in the West, how we would tend to look at it, we think the new day starts at sunrise or in the morning. So Jesus is really within the day of his crucifixion. Also notice the love of Christ in this whole thing. He says, with fervent desire, I have desired to have this meal with you before I suffer. So this is something that means a lot to the Lord. He says with fervent desire. John also adds another comment in verse 1 of, of his book, chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here's how... Luke records again that fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is not to say that Jesus' disciples were nearly perfect guys who had no issues and that Christ was concerned about. In fact, Luke also records that Jesus was still dealing with his followers' self-centered efforts to be the greatest in the kingdom. Luke chapter 22 and verse 24 tells us this, and this is right in that same time period. Yet as John said of Jesus' love for his 12 disciples, he loved them to the end. Thus you can see that Jesus certainly dealt with the issues of sin and weakness that were in the lives of his disciples, but he did not let that stop him from enjoying and appreciating them. 
And so our Lord is saying, I, I just fervently desire to be with you guys one more time before I suffer. And this would be his last meal with him and why we would call it the Last Supper. Now, there's a bunch of issues that are swirling around at this point. Let me give you some of the some of the major ones. First of all, you have Satan is really on the move here. He's been convincing Judas to betray Jesus. As John had written, we read earlier how Satan has put it into his heart to betray the Lord. The second thing Satan's doing is he, he's actually been asking to sift Peter as wheat. He wants to, to put Peter to trial because he is convinced that Peter will fail, and he's right on that. Those of you that know the, the uh, account of the Passion fairly well, you would realize that Peter denied three times that he even knew Christ before the, the, the morning after this supper. And so certainly Satan is, is on the move working to convince Judas to betray the Lord, to sift Peter as wheat as he said. Jesus, by the way, doesn't even bring that up until shortly after the Last Supper, if we have the events correct. Not only is Satan working, but the disciples are in a weakened spot. They're weakened by what? Well, self-centeredness and ambitions to personal power. That's why Jesus does the, the foot washing of his disciples. If you remember, he's teaching them again by example, don't be so intent on what you can get and being the greatest and everybody serving you, he said, you be uh, intent on serving other people. And so he's washing their feet to try to show them this. And let me just give you his words. I'm going to go back to John chapter 13. Again, John's account of this, he was there. Jesus actually washed his feet. But at the end of, of washing the feet, he says, you call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is saying, look, fellas, you've got to learn to focus on serving, not being served. And of course, what an example Jesus was of that. I believe it was something that they really did get later on in life, especially when the Holy Spirit came on their lives and they thought back on Jesus' example. But the disciples are weak at this point. They're self-centered, ambitious. They're overconfident of their loyalty to Christ. You remember that Jesus warned them all, saying that they were going to deny him that night, that they were going to flee from him. He even showed them in a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. He also tried to warn Peter specifically, and both Peter and the others would not listen to Jesus' warnings. Oh, no, 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 we'll never, we'll never deny you. We'll never forsake you. And let's also add on the disciples' weakness that not only were they self-centered and ambitious and overconfident, but they were also physically tired and did not pray much in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus really urged them to do so. But a lot of that was the fact that they were just so tired. And so as Jesus was literally pouring out his heart in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating drops of blood in the agony of anticipating what he's about to go through, the disciples were asleep. And what you find is Satan then will mercilessly attack these men while they are weak and vulnerable. And don't fail also to understand that Judas's betrayal of Christ deeply would hurt these men. It's like when a soldier loses a buddy in battle. It hurts them deeply. Well, these men had, had been around Judas, had lived with him, had been part of fellowshipping and walking and worshiping together, even doing miracles together. And now, what is going on? How could they 
put that and, and understand that. So we see Satan working. We see the disciples are weak. We also see something else swirling around the events here, and that is God is in control. Now, Christ would emphasize this, and it would be desperately needed that the apostles could hang on to this, although they're really, really going to struggle with this over the next few days. But Christ is showing the disciples repeatedly, look, fellas, some bad things are going to happen here. But keep in mind, God is in control. Now, how does he do that? Well, first of all, he's showing that God is in control despite Christ's approaching death and resurrection. And he's talked about that on several occasions before. And so that he's been trying to really ram into their consciousness that I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. They still did not really get that. He also is trying to show them God's control, despite the disciples' upcoming abandonment of Christ as was prophesied. That would be a huge issue in those disciples' lives. Can you imagine losing the one that you knew was the Messiah and then wondering if it was your fault? Well, what if we had never run away from him in the garden? What if we defended him? Maybe God would have given us the ability to fight off even though we were way outnumbered because who were we defending? The Messiah, but we, we ran. So I don't think any of us can fathom the loss these men felt when Christ was crucified because we've never had the joy and the privilege of walking with the Son of God. Compound that with the guilt they would feel from the fact that they had run from Jesus when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, would you not feel that his death was part your fault for not standing and fighting for him? I think they definitely felt that way. So if Jesus really was the Messiah, wouldn't you be asking yourself, well, did my cowardice ruin the whole thing? And so what Jesus is going to point out as we go through these passages is, fellas, listen, this was in God's plan. My arrest, my crucifixion. I'm telling you about this beforehand so that you'll understand that it's not that you've done something wrong as per se that's caused this. This is God's plan. Now, also, Peter is going to need a tremendous amount of encouragement. He would deny even knowing Christ three times within the next few hours. And if you remember, Jesus said to him, the Gospel of Luke records this, Simon, he says, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. And so Peter would be desperately discouraged and disheartened by his failure. Matter of fact, it's rather interesting as well. Even after Jesus' resurrection, he's appearing to a number of his uh, followers who were ladies. And he said to them, go tell my disciples and Peter that I'm going before you into Galilee. As if Jesus was anticipating that if he just says, go tell my disciples, Peter may have said to himself, well, I'm not a disciple anymore. I failed so miserably. I don't have the right to call myself a disciple. But Jesus makes sure that Peter knows he's invited. Isn't that interesting? Jesus even points out that the betrayal of Judas was part of God's plan. Now, I'm, I'm reading from John chapter uh, 13 again. And John records, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now it says leaning on his bosom, again, they're reclining at a table. And so John is reclining next to Jesus. Then it says that Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he 
to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we have need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So what you see now that's going on, again, swirling around the Last Supper as they're having this Passover meal, is the exposure of Judas and Judas's departure. Now, this would be extremely painful for Christ, and the other disciples may have been very upset about the fact that Judas was going to betray Jesus, but I don't think they thought this was going to happen anytime soon. I really don't think they expected it to be so quickly. So Jesus dismisses Judas, and a matter of fact, the loyal disciples, John tells us, and he's one of them, he said, we didn't know where he was going. Rather interestingly, he said, we thought maybe he was getting some more things for the feast that we had to pick up, or that Jesus had dismissed him to give something to the poor, which meant that they must have been doing that on a regular basis. Judas also, we're told, had the money bag or the, the money box, as, as uh, is in the New King James. So the idea is that Judas had access to the funds. And so the disciples did not even anticipate that when Jesus said, what you do, do quickly, he was actually speaking of the fact that Judas had determined to, to betray him and Jesus was dismissing him from the group. That brings us then to the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, again, often called Holy Communion or the Eucharist by some of you. As they were eating, now I'm back really in Matthew's account here, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup after supper and gave thanks to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, and divide it among yourselves. Now, I, I will tell you that, and, and I'm not alone on this, it seems that this takes place, the institution or inauguration of the Lord's Supper. Now we talk about Holy Communion or the Eucharist. We talk about this. It seems to have taken place after Judas left. Now this would make sense since the Lord's Supper, that's how I refer to it, is meant for God's children to ha who have accepted Christ as Savior. If you want to look in a good passage that will identify the major teaching for the church about the Lord's Supper, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 23 to 34. I'm going to consider a number of those verses from that passage, so if you want to get ahead of me, that's a good place that you can go. Now, Jesus used the bread and the wine to illustrate his sacrificial death that was about to take place. So, there's a couple things that we need to talk about uh, right now. The first one is that one of the major keys of interpretation, when you're trying to discern, discern what the Word of God is saying, is you want to look at what the original audience would see or think when the writer is penning the words or when he's describing a scene. And from that perspective, it's clear that Jesus was speaking symbolically and not literally. That is, the disciples would not have eaten a piece of Jesus' flesh, and they certainly would not have drunk his literal blood. And so when you think about observing the Lord's Supper, 
Do not think that the bread or the or the wine or the juice is becoming the body and blood of the Lord. It was he was speaking metaphorically, he was speaking symbolically. Matter of fact, if the disciples had thought that it was real blood they were drinking, they wouldn't have drank it. It was absolutely forbidden in Jewish law. Let me read you Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 to 12. This is a commands of God. It says, And wherever, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So you'll notice there's a clear commandment against eating blood. So please don't uh, twist Jesus' words when he says, he, he says, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. Please don't twist those words into making Jesus say something he's not trying to say. He's using symbolism. He's not saying, you're drinking my blood, you're eating my flesh. They would have known that, and we should still know that today. So there's not any kind of a miracle going on. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Now, uh, when at at the Lord's when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're not trans. Uh, the term is called transubstantiation. There are many denominations that believe that when um, the uh, clergyman, the priest, uh, raises the the wafer, the the bread, that at that point it becomes the body of Christ. Not only is that um, not what Jesus was saying, but it is actually going against other passages of Scripture that tell us that we are not in any way re-sacrificing re, re Christ when we observe the Lord's Supper, this time, the special time of telling God, thank you. And I'm going to read you some verses out of Hebrews chapter uh, 7, chapter 9, and chapter 10 that really show us this. The first one is in chapter 7 and verse 25, where the author of Hebrews says, Therefore he, speaking of Christ, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, who has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself." So we're not re-sacrificing Christ at the Lord's Supper in any sense. We are truly giving thanks. That's what we're doing. We're to be thanking God for the, the, the one-time sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Now, this is so important because in, in chapter 9, I'm going to start at verse 11, it says, But Christ came as high priest of good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of, blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, 
having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now what he's saying is that there's a he's drawing a comparison between the Old Testament sacrifices that were conducted at the temple where there was repeated sacrifices for the same sins to the fact that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross was a once and for all event and that's why it's so important that we understand we are not re-sacrificing Christ. That's against the entire argument of much of the book of Hebrews, showing us that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient once and for all. Now, I'm coming to chapter 10, and he's going to come back to this theme. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm starting at verse 10. He says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the when we think about the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're celebrating a event, the crucifixion of our Savior, the blood that he shed, the, the body that was bruised and broken for us. We are celebrating that um, event, but we are not re-sacrificing Christ in any way. It's very important that we understand that. And it's very clear when you read the scripture that that is the case. Now, we also need to remember what Jesus suffered to save you as you participate in the Lord's Supper. It needs to be a major part of your thinking. And so I'm going to come now to a passage I mentioned earlier. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the Apostle Paul here is dealing with how we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And uh, what you'll find is very interesting. There is no direct command as to how often you're to observe the ceremony. So you have different churches will do it different ways. Some of your churches may observe the Lord's Supper every week. Others may do it every uh, month. Our church does it every other month. Some churches will do it once a quarter. We do know this. We are to observe it. And we're to do it on a, on a regular basis. But, but as far as how regular that has to be, the scriptures really don't tell us. And, and God isn't absent-minded. He didn't miss an, a, a point. But he does, so he does not focus on how often you have to do it. He does focus on this, how, when you do it, how you're supposed to conduct yourself. So let me start with you on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So 
let me just point out a few things as, that we've just read from this account. And that is, Jesus is using the bread and the wine to illustrate then his sacrificial death that was about to take place. He's speaking symbolically, and so we're not re-sacrificing Christ in any sense when we observe the Lord's Supper today. So, as we observe it though, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And of course, the bread is symbolizing his body that is broken and bruised for us. His, the, the juice or is, is to symbolize the blood that was shed on the cross for our salvation. And we're to do this and proclaim, Jesus said, his death until he comes. That's the Apostle Paul in, in chapter 11 and verse 26. So we're to proclaim Christ's death. We're to be thankful and to be testifying of Christ's death until he returns. Now, there is also something else to keep in mind when we're, we're observing the Lord's Supper. Not only we're doing, we're, we're giving thanks for the death of Christ for his sacrifice until his return. But I am also to do this in a manner worthy of proclaiming Christ's sacrifice. So I'm going to start right after where I just left off. I'm in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, if you're following along. And I'm going to be reading down until uh, verse 27, just to start us here. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, that's a very serious statement. And what it gives us is this and some other verses just down below here are going to give us two problems to avoid. The first one is a flippant attitude toward the Lord's Supper. What does it mean to observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Well, part of it could involve a flippant attitude. That's, it's improper. It's wrong to be bored or irritated about when the service is going to end when you're supposed to be remembering and thanking God for the sacrifice of Christ. You think people ever are sitting in church, even during the observance of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, you think people are ever sitting there and saying to themselves, well, when is this thing going to end? You know, or I wonder what's going to happen on the football game today. Or, boy, i got to get out of here because we got the Super Bowl party coming up. Instead of thinking about Christ's sacrifice when you stand in God's presence for this sacred ceremony. And this is very serious because we're going to stand before God one day and we know that God is going to reveal not just what we say, but what we think. And so if I'm in the middle of this sacred ceremony where I'm supposed to be thanking God for the sacrifice of Christ, I'm thanking Jesus for, for, for shedding his blood for me and, and for sacrificing his body for me so that I could be saved. And I'm spending my thoughts thinking some foolishness has nothing to do with that. That's I'm going to give an account for that. So let me just give you some recommendations as to what I try to do when, in our church, how we do it, and I know different churches do it differently. In our situation, I have a couple deacons that I call up, and we have the bread and the juice. We have grape juice uh, that, we, that we give both to the brothers and sisters, the, the people who are believers in Christ who are willing to partake of the Lord's Supper. So we don't restrict just the bread for the people. And, the, and then the, uh, I think the, in the Catholic system, they, they use the wine for the priest. We don't do it that way. You know, we consider everybody on the same level as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we give both the bread and the juice to everyone who uh, is ready to take that. And so when, when I'm 
uh, at the uh, uh, standing in front of the elements, the uh, and the deacons are out passing out to those who want to partake of the Lord's Supper. What am I going to do with my time? You know what I'm saying? I want to be thinking about my Lord. I want to be thinking about his sacrifice. And so when I'm holding the bread, I'm often, or waiting for the bread, I'm often thinking on some verses concerning the bodily sufferings of our Lord. And one of them is 1 Peter 2.24 that talks about who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you're healed. So during when I think about that passage, it's 1 Peter 2.24, I'm thinking about the sufferings of Christ, his whipping, the fact that he bore in his body my sin. Another passage that I like to think about while the men are giving the bread out, and so I can meditate on this, is Isaiah chapter 53 and verses 4 to 6. And it's talking about this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And I think about the way that, that Christ was, was actually literally physically wounded with the nails going through his hands. I think about, about the horrific beatings and the whippings he took. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That idea of bruises, I, being crushed. Thinking about the soldiers whacking down the, the, uh, uh, the, the crown of thorns on his head and hitting him on the head with a rod. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And I even put my peace was upon him. I put make it personal. And with his stripes, and I think again of his whippings, the beating of the cat of nine tails, with his stripes we are healed. And then verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I think during that time as they're giving the bread out, I think about what it would be like to have been there. And to see my Lord beaten and, and knocked around and all of the things that he went through because of my sin. I want to be thankful for that. Then when the juice is being passed out, again, that's how we do it. We have the, our deacons, they will be passing out the juice to whoever wants to partake. I think of some verses dealing with the blood of Christ. One of them is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, which says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sins. I think of that one. I think of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, which says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain manner of living, Received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, I think about the blood of Christ that was shed for my sins. And then I think about 1 John 1, 7, which says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. I also like to imagine the... The, the moment that I will stand before God for the very first time, stand before Christ, and see the wounds that I caused. And just in my mind's eye, folks, I, I just have to get down on my face in front of him and just tell him how sorry I am for what I've done to cause him to suffer in my place. 
And that's some of the things I think about to try to help me to be thankful at the time when we're trying to observe the Lord's Supper. So one of the ways that we observe it in an unworthy manner is to be flippant about the whole thing, to not be caring about Christ's sacrifice for me. A second way I can observe it in an unworthy manner, which is an abomination to God, is with unrepentant sin in my life, sin that I'm not willing to deal with. Now, now can you see the inconsistency of doing the Lord's Supper and and having being so with, with open sin that I'm not willing to confess? Now, now think about this. If I'm celebrating his death for my sin, if I'm celebrating his sacrifice for my sin, but I'm continuing to sin on purpose, I'm continuing to, to commit sins against God, against the Lord intentionally. I'm making a mockery of observing the Lord's Supper. How can you and I enter into this ceremony while deliberately committing sins that added to his pain? It doesn't make any sense. Now, in the immediate context, back in verses 17 to 22 of this passage, it was concerning Christians who were showing favoritism towards some in the church in what was commonly called a love feast, which would be very similar to like a fellowship dinner. Those of you that have ever gone to a church service that has one of those. And they would literally, in this one congregation in Corinth, people would bring food to this dinner, but they would only bring it for certain people. And so they literally would call their friends and exclude other people, and they would have all the food they wanted, and they really didn't care about their brothers and sisters, many of them whom were poor and didn't have even enough to eat. And it was such an abomination because there's there's this uh, this favoritism and divisions that this was causing. It was a mess. And and again, there are major issues sometimes between believers in a church. And the reality is, if we're going to celebrate Jesus' sacrifice for us, we ought to do the best that we can as you and I as individuals to be right with our brothers and sisters. Now, we can't make them um, forgive us. We at least ought to try to be right with them because, again, to hold sin against my brother or sister, have a bitter attitude, and then to come and celebrate, oh, Christ, I'm so glad you sacrificed for me. It's making a mockery when I know I'm doing something that's wrong and being bitter towards someone else. Now, there's also an application then that can be made in our own life where he says don't observe this in an unworthy manner. Now, if you're going to live with your girlfriend, quite honestly, don't take the Lord's Supper. If You, you know that's wrong. So don't be living in sin, walk into the church and expect then, oh, I'm just going to act like all is well. That's an abomination to God. You're kicking God in the shins while you're thanking God for for the, the sacrifice of Christ. That doesn't make any sense. If you're going to view, verbally abuse your wife and your kids and not make it right, not, not get on your knees and tell your wife how sorry you are, your kids are how sorry you are, and you're going to walk into church and you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, shame on you. Matter of fact, I'm just telling you this, that's an abomination to God. If you're going to get drunk when you go home and you're planning on all kinds of wickedness as soon as you leave the church, then don't celebrate the Lord's Supper because you're not. If you're going to cheat in your business, don't go and pretend to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we've seen two problems to avoid. One is the flippant attitude towards the Lord's Supper where I'm just not even concerned about thinking about what Christ has done for me. The other one is the flippant attitude towards sin in my own life. And I'm just going to live any way I want to live. And then I'm going to come in and I'm going to pack God on the back for sending Christ. That's just not going to work. 
Why? Because it, 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 it's just so evil. Verse 27 tells us that it involves sinning against Christ himself and his sacrifice for you. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So you're sinning against Christ himself and his sacrifice for you. And by the way, the body and the blood not only symbolize Christ's sacrifice, but in a, in a sense, the Christians that he bought through his body and blood. So if you're going to have a nasty attitude towards your Christian brother or sister, don't celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, there are a couple commands to follow when you're going to want to observe the Lord's Supper. The first one is that we are commanded to do this. So I, I had some people in my church years ago, not, not where I'm served now, but a number of years back, and their whole response, because they did fear God, was, well, I'm just not going to take the chance. I'm not going to observe the Lord's Supper at all. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. I want you to do this. So God's not expecting you to, to be perfect, that there's some sin you forgot about, but he is expecting that you're going to deal with sins you know about. And there's something else he tells us to do. He says, So he says, do this. But then verse 28, he says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So we ought to be doing it. It's, not, it's a cop-out to say, well, I just won't observe the Lord's Supper. He says, no, examine yourself, get right with God, and then observe the Lord's Supper. That's what the Christian is supposed to do. But what about those that don't? What about a genuine Christian who comes into the Lord's Supper, and let's say he's got a bitterness in his heart toward his uh, wife, or let's say that he is cheating in business and he knows, he knows what's going on, He's not willing to face it, and he's going to go ahead and observe the Lord's Supper. Do Christians ever do that? Genuinely born-again Christians? Yeah, sometimes that happens. What happens to the Christian that does that? There are three judgments for disrespecting the Lord's Supper that are dealt with in the next two verses. It says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You don't care about, about the Lord's sacrifice for you? That's really what you're saying. And so verse 30, here's, here's the judgments. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now there's three things that can happen to the Christian that is disrespectful to the Lord's Supper. Number one, weakness. And there are Christian people, and they can't figure out why. They're so weak, and they don't have any ability to get around and do things. And I'll just tell you, and by the way, please understand, this is not in every case that you have a Christian that's suffering weakness. But I will tell you that there are Christians, even in this day in which we live, that their health problems of weakness stem back to a disrespect of the Lord's Supper. There's a second thing that can happen. That is sickness. This, for this reason, many are weak and sickly among you, or sick among you. And God absolutely can send sickness to those who are, who are hypocritically observing the Lord's Supper with a disrespectful attitude or with hypocrisy. But there's a third judgment, and it can involve death. When he says many sleep, that's not a good thing. It's not, oh, good, I got a nap. We're talking about people dying. Now, I know that some of you are probably saying to yourself, well, hold on. If God still judges rebellious children today who disrespect the Lord's Supper... And by the way, I am convinced he does. 
Well, what about, I know so-and-so, and they're living in obvious sin. They're, they're observing the Lord's Supper at their church. God hasn't judged them yet. What about that? Well, let me say a couple things. First of all, remember the word yet. You know, the Lord doesn't like, doesn't want to have to judge his people. And if they'll repent, and maybe you haven't seen that, but if they'll repent, that's great. But let me say there may be a some, something else going on. I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 12. It was out near where I was before. I'm going to read you verses 5 to 8. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. I will submit to you, and I am not the judge God is, but there are people who are being hypocritical when it comes to the Lord's Supper. They're misusing the sacred ceremony, and nothing's happening to them. And I'll tell you why, because they don't know Christ as Savior. They're fakes. And the sad thing is, if they don't repent, they're going to be in hell, though they may have observed the Lord's Supper for decades. The fact that the person you may be thinking of is not being judged by God may mean that your friend is not a child of God at all. So when the Lord's Supper is inaugurated, it seems that Judas is left. Jesus uses the bread and wine to illustrate his sacrificial death that was about to take place. And then Jesus is going to announce the new covenant, or what we commonly call the New Testament, that is going to be sealed with his blood. Listen, I'm reading again from the gospel accounts of the, of the Lord's Supper. It says, for this, Jesus speaking, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And they all drank from it. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So you notice that Jesus announced the new covenant, the New Testament, that would be sealed in his blood. He said, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So the new covenant was prophesied, by the way, back in the book of Jeremiah, about 600 years before Christ that there was going to be a new covenant and it's going to involve the nation of Israel and, and the salvation of the masses of that nation. But thank God it involves all of us as well. And he's telling his disciples that when we are part, of, we're under the blood of Christ, so to speak. The idea is that we've accepted his sacrifice for our sins. We have forgiveness of sins and we're over, under that new covenant. And Jesus said, very interestingly to me, that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drank it new with, with his disciples in his kingdom. Now, that has not even happened yet. And what I take from that is Christ is not fully going to rejoice again. The idea of drinking um, the, uh, the, the fruit of the vine, uh, the, the juice with his disciples in a time of rejoicing, that's not going to happen again until God's kingdom is coming. It comes, and that has not happened yet. It shows how Christ is longing for his kingdom to come. Folks, I, I think if we only understood how close we may be to the return of our Lord, we would be acting a lot differently. 
Now, what do we conclude from all of this? The institution, then, of the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper. Well, first of all, we see Jesus' love for his true followers. To long to be with them one more time before his crucifixion. He, he loved them despite their sins, their weaknesses. Uh, he was preparing them for what he knew was ahead of them, the betrayal of Judas and Judas's eternal destruction, their own forsaking of Christ out of fear. He was preparing them for all of this. We also see not only Christ's love for his followers, but God's eternal plan that would not be thwarted, that was not going to be ruined by the, the failures of, of men. All this would happen to the disciples. All the things that they would go through, the failures that they would make, was not going to mess up God's plan. All that would happen to Christ, his, his, his arrest, his beatings, his, the fake trials, the injustice of it all, nailing him to a cross, that didn't thwart God's plan. It was God's plan. All the sins that were committed. And may I just apply that to your life. You may have events in your life that were horrific. Now, I will just tell you, they were not as unjust as putting to death the only one who had never sinned. None of us have endured that kind of injustice, but that was unjust. Christ's sacrifice for us, but it, I will tell you, God can still work good out of the greatest evil. The Lord's Supper then is highly significant. His suffering to save us, his return to establish his kingdom uh, is all part of this thing. And of course, there are serious judgments upon those who, who are disrespectful toward this sacred ceremony. Let me also say as we close that this is the reason why clergy have at times withheld the Lord's Supper from corrupt politicians or others who they know to be openly living in unrepentant sin. Though often the clergymen will be trashed for it. The man who does not serve the Lord's Supper to a person who claims to be a Christian, but is in obvious rebellion against God's clear commands, is actually trying to spare that rebel from the horrific judgment of God. That is actually an act for mercy. We say, well, you don't have the right to judge that person. Well, if that person is claiming, let's say that the person is an abortionist and is standing up proudly for the right to kill babies. That is an abomination in God's sight. I think every right is there to say, nope, if you're, if you're still holding that position, we're not giving you the Lord's Supper. So I hope you have much to think about in the next time you observe this sacred ceremony. And I hope you'll take seriously your need to observe the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And so that you may also need to examine your salvation if for years you've been observing this thing in a wicked way, hypocritically, dishonestly, um, unconcerned, you better check because there's a real possibility that if you haven't been judged by God already, that the truth is you don't belong to him. Because you know the truth is Christ paid an incomprehensible price for your salvation, and you and I should appreciate it. May the Lord bless you. Have a great day. May God help us all to observe the Lord's Supper in a manner which is pleasing to Him and honoring of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. May our spirit each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper be one of gratitude to Jesus for all that He suffered to save us. If you would like some spiritual help like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. Our podcast contains not only the series on the life of Christ, but also our pastor series on the messages that Jesus Himself preached. Again, that link to our podcast can be found at radiobold.com 
gmail.com slash Baptist. We'd also like to invite you to join us for our church's annual Wild Game Supper on Saturday, March 11th at 6 p.m. Our Wild Game Supper is a free dinner that mainly consists of homemade dishes that area hunters fix from the game that they have harvested over the past hunting season. The meal is to be held at our family center at 527 Calkins Road, Milanville, Pennsylvania. You're welcome to come and join us. Reservations are not necessary but are helpful for planning the meal. For reservations or for more information, you can email us at pastorlane3 at yahoo.com. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Lasting life and light, he frees.